Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about the future, technology, work, and how we might organise it. How should we think about the future? What conscious or unconscious stories do we project onto images of the future? And what are some of the most disruptive trends when it comes to work practices and organisational life? Julian is an industry fellow in enterprise and innovation at RMIT University, where he researches emerging forms of work, organising, and their relationship with existing organisational and social theory. His PhD research was of the early phase of co-working in Melbourne. Working Futures in the New Economy, a Florence Guild conversation with Julian Waters Lynch. Thanks, Mahes. <clears throat> I feel like, um, remember when Clint Eastwood did that really weird conversation with the empty chair? Like, <laughs> I've got this sort of interviewed by a glass of water, but um, I'll ignore that. So thanks, and it's wonderful to be here. My name's Jules. Um, and it's, it's interesting being in a co-working space, sort of having a conversation like this, because as Ma has said, my PhD research was on co-working. And in a way, I got started uh, doing public talks like this in the early phase of co-working spaces, um, particularly Hub Melbourne, Inspire9. I see a few nodding heads and faces that were around at that time. And um, it turned out co-working, even though I was really studying why people co-work and how they co-work and how their experience changed over time, uh, it, it was a fantastic place to like a village or a petri dish to study many of these future of work dynamics. So in, in my own research, I kind of got uh, more interested in some of these broader changes, um, which are sometimes hard to talk about in academia because academia likes very precise, small things. Um, you get in trouble if you talk about big patterns at times. So I'll um, feel free to just kind of shoot from the hip a bit tonight. I was suggesting I'd, I'd cut this in four parts. So first, talk a little bit about how to think about the future in general. Like, what is it just this thing that's out there that we're inevitably rushing towards? Or are there different ways of conceiving of futures? And I, there's a few people in the room that um, are quite close to the, this issue. Um, and then talk about some of those megatrends, those disruptive stats, you know, the 40, 60% of current jobs in danger of getting automated or outsourced and um, sift through them, but really uh, what do they mean and what, what, you know, what are the possible other consequences of them? Um, and talk a little bit about the social implications of that, particularly say what it means for young people um, who for a variety of reasons, maybe some, some ways privileged and some ways the brunt of it hits them. Um, and then finish with some thoughts that's really as much seeking questions <laughs> from you guys about how should we respond to this individually, organizationally and institutionally. So hopefully most of those headlines should be in there. Um, let me begin with the futures question though. So 
Um, there is this field called strategic foresight or futures, and we have a few representatives here tonight um, of a local program uh, from Swinburne used to run a master's on this, and there's not many places in the world you can study it. And it goes back as a discipline to sort of H.G. Wells and the early days of the early 20th century sci-fi writers. And the basic idea was, if you can have a history department in a university, why not have a futures department? Um, which seems like a, a, a good idea. Um, and yet you're confronted with this challenge of there's no such thing as a future fact. Right? You can't study it uh, in the same way as we study other disciplines. So different scholars or, or different theorists have come up with, I guess, different answers to this. And the, the classic one, and I think, or, or the, should I say, the, the sort of 101 place to thinking about futures is as a series of disruptive trends. Yeah, this is the idea that there's, there's seeds in the present that we can look at and um, follow along the sort of innovation adoption curve and they'll grow to be big issues or big opportunities in the future. We go back 20 years, we, we see Steve Jobs, you know, coming back to Apple or Sergey and Larry, you know, forgoing their PhD program and starting Google. And, and just like now, if we look at uh, blockchain and Bitcoin, these sort of things, we, we would expect certain uh, seeds in the present to expand um, in the future. And I mean, it's, it's the, I guess that's the spirit behind William Gibson's quote that the future's already here, just unevenly distributed. Um, and this is often what you see presented in future of worky conferences. People are co-working now, <laughs> oh, this many people are, but look at the trend, right? It's gonna go up. Or this many people are digital nomads or working in this industry. Um, and it's, it's a good way to think about things, but the, the challenge here is distinguishing what I call the edge from the fringe. Um, so not every trend grows, right? Some trends get disrupted. And the classic case study here, well, the fun one is the great horse manure crisis of 1894, <laughs> which I'm sure just rolls off the tongue for everybody. <laughs> but um, I don't know if you've, has anyone heard of this one? Is this, no, <laughs> good. Uh, that's, this was a headline of the London Times in 1894 saying, you know, in 50 years, we're all going to be um, covered in nine feet of horse manure in the cities. There were, there were 50,000 horses in London at the time. There were 100,000 horses, horse buggies in New York. And if you just simply expanded demographics, if you said, well, um, what are the projected population growth of cities plus horse and buggies, you get um, rolling piles of manure and urine, <laughs> a kind of uh, horse nightmare. Right? And well, obviously in hindsight, um, the motor car was already around at the time. There were various prototypes. And it was only a few years later that, that Henry Ford did the first T model, you know, so 1908. Um, so, so we're always in danger, I, I think, of simply extrapolating a current trend and not seeing the sort of Schumpeterian disruptive one. So, so what's, what's swing to it thinking about the future? How do you distinguish the signal from the noise? So the second way of thinking about the future, I, I think it's a little better, is as a sort of fan of possibilities. This is often popularized by um, a local lad, Joe Voris's Future Cone. And if you imagine the sort of present and as a fanning out cone of, of probable, plausible, and possible scenarios. Yeah? Um, so we might put those trends in a, in a sort of uh, probable domain. Um, and yet we always want to be attentive to these wildcardy-like scenarios. We want to deliberately push the edges of what we consider is possible to help build a sort of foresight literacy. 
And in many ways, the most, the most important P in that mix is the preferable future. How do, we, how do we, through conversations like this, actually talk about what we want? How do we create futures that are shaped by our values and aspirations and not, not set up this dynamic where we think we're just victims to trends? You know, there's sort of this uh, California-generated automation wave and we, you know, we just have to let it wash over us, right? Um, so the, I think this is a helpful way to think about it. Um, one challenge with this is we tend to not just look at the future or representations of the future in a neutral way. We tend to project our own uh, preferences on it. So, so a third way of thinking about futures, and this really uh, goes back to work by Jim Data from the Hawaiian School of Futures, is um, as these four archetypes or stories that we project onto data. So Jim Data, <laughs> Data, Dator is his name, uh, was looking at this issue in the 70s and 80s and trying to make sense of these different representations of futures, um, some which were very, are wildly different. And he said, well, there seem to be these four archetypes, four generic versions of the future. The first he called the, the business as usual, the, continua the continuation future, right? This is a sort of, you know, um, it, it's almost like the standard political line when someone said, we're not talking about these issues, you know, that budgets need to be balanced and we need more economic growth and kids need to go to school and working families need affordable housing or <laughs> whatever it is, right? Um, that the future, sure, phones will get a little faster, but um, the future will essentially look like an extension of the present. The second generic future he talked about was called, uh, well, he called it the collapse scenario. And this is popularized by many Hollywood movies, right? It's, it's the, the um, environmental or nuclear or alien invasion or indeed economic collapse scenario where our social institutions break down. Um, everything we, we kind of understand as predictable about the world um, falls apart. And, and we're all familiar with a, a sort of version of this, right? In many ways, it's become more popular, I think, the last 20 years. The third future he talked about as a sort of disciplined society. This is this idea that we've been maybe profligate in the past and we need to discipline um, ourselves and, and uh, social spending, right? So it's like an austere version of the future. And there are environmental versions of this, like we've, we've got to do more with less, or there's economic versions of this that we just don't have the money to fund what we had in the past. And there's, there's religious versions of this that we need to, we need to uh, morally discipline ourselves. Yeah? So that's, that's the third one. And the fourth one um, is this notion of a transformed future, that we may be passing through an historical moment that um, where the future looks as different as, say, the agrarian to industrial revolution, right? That the shape of uh, society fundamentally changes. It's, it's, it's not just how we work, but how we live, how we organize indeed, how we experience ourselves, um, if you really want to get into it. Um, and again, there's, there's religious rapture versions of this, but the one that's, that's probably um, become like a secular uh, myth recently is this notion of the singularity. Um, I don't know if you've all heard of it, but Raymond Kurzweil's the big guy. That's, um, it's basically this, this cyborg-like moment, right, where humans meld with AI and we can't see beyond um, what happens. Yeah. So 
I don't know if that's your bag, but there's certainly writing about it. Um, fourth and final future. I will get to the good stuff, the headlines. But um, So this is from Sahail Iniyilatullah. He, he argues we should think of the future as like an iceberg with lots of layers, four layers. <laughs> um, so whilst we see the top, the 40 to 60% sort of headline trend, you know, um, the clickbait ones that, you know, your job's going to get uh, taken by a robot. Uh, and that, that's good. We should, we should consider these. Uh, there's layers underpinning this. The first one is probably familiar. It's these systemic layers, yeah? Technological, social, legal layers that give rise to these sort of headlines. But importantly, there's also these worldview layers, stakeholder layers. So where you are in society, your vantage point, will affect how you look at the future. I mean, these sort of trends look one way if you're driving a Tesla in, in California. <laughs> um, they look quite different if you're in a small town in South Australia, right? Um, they look different perhaps when you're looking through the lens of a parent versus a child or an employer or employee, depending on your levels of education, etc. So how we imagine the future is dependent on that. But also there's this bottom layer of, of kind of an undergirding myth or a narrative that holds society together. And I think for me, in many ways, this is the interesting stuff to discuss, that if you accept um, these great changes, it's not only a change in sort of technology and productivity, but it's also uh, how we imagine what the good society is. So to, to take an example, I think there's, there's been a, a kind of post-war um, social myth, if you like, in countries like Australia, where it's somewhere between the meritocracy and, and kind of work ethic, Protestant work ethic dynamic, where if you, if you arrive or you're born here and you study hard, work hard, you can get ahead and advance your, your own economic interests, the interests of your family and children. Um, and that seemed to work pretty well for a number of decades. But I think there's some evidence that that's fraying a bit for at least some members of society. Um, and I, I, I posit we're kind of between myths at the moment, where we've got a number of competing ones, but we're at a bit of an interregnum. So, four different ways of thinking about the future. And, and maybe it, it might be worth doing a quick pause before I jump into megatrends and testing the, the water to see how that makes sense, or do you feel attracted to one version of that or not the other? I mean, I'd argue society is made of stories, right? And there's usually a dominant story that helps bring coherence. And so when we're talking about this stuff, we can't ignore that. I'll keep going. All right, disruptive trends. So I don't know if it's on PC now to say the frame, the phrase Blind Freddy. It used to be, it was one I grew up with. Blind Freddy could see that something's happening with work, right? Um, and this is talked about in a number of different ways as, as a big shift. Um, a sort of great disruption, uh, great upheaval, a second machine age, or a next industrial revolution. There's, there's tons of popular books out, out on this topic, right? Um, and it's this combination of technological development and globalization and policy choices. And I think most interestingly, perhaps new values or new uh, domains of value um, that are coming together to reshape where humans fit into the productive cycle. And I think there's two responses to this. Like one is we've been here before and there's really nothing to worry about. And the second is, I'll summarize it as this time, it's, it really is different, right? 
Um, and I think depending on what kind of image of the future you're attracted to, it may influence which side of the fence you fall down. So if I talk about the, we've been here before, I mean, a, a classic sort of vanilla economist response to this is, sure, work's changing and technology's disrupting work. Um, but if we went back 100 years in the late 19th century and then you look at the US economy, which was essentially a developing country at the time, 90% of the workforce was involved in agriculture. Yeah? Um, true story. The, you know, they're, they're on farms. And, and we don't look back and lament the fact that um, there was this massive wave of urbanization, of building the suburbs, of moving into factories and bureaucratic organizations, um, such that now I think it's 4% of the labor force in the US is involved in agriculture. Um, so, so that's fine. So people say, well, well the same sort of thing's happening, right? Um, we're just going to shift what we do. And I think it's worth digging into this idea a little bit more. So, at the, you know, <laughs> I'll try it <laughs> just a little bit. Um, so, so there's this idea of techno-economic paradigms, yeah? These are kind of organizing logics, like foraging societies, horticultural, pastoral, agrarian societies, industrial societies, informational societies. These big phases where... Uh, where work looks a particular way, the majority of people are doing a particular kind of work, and that's usually undergirded by what's called a general purpose technology or two. And, and these have, these, there's only been a few of them throughout history. General purpose technologies are things that, um, like electricity, that end up powering everything, like filtering in, once discovered and diffused, filtering to affect everything. And so writing was a general purpose technology. You know, language was the wheel. Uh, steam engine, you know, there's been a number of these. Um, and if you, if you dig into someone like Carlotta Perez, <laughs> who, who really looked at this in detail, she, she argued that the Industrial Revolution, what we call the Industrial Revolution, was made up of these five particular revolutions. Um, she called them, well, the first one in the late 18th century was around canals and factories. The second one was about steam and railways, so 1829. 1875, steel and heavy engineering. 1908, oil, automobile and mass production. And in her configuration, 1971, you get the Intel chip that sort of kicks off this IT revolution, right? But her work's interesting because she says these come in two parts. They come in a sort of what she called an installation phase, so when a technology is discovered and kind of rapidly invested. Um, so this is when you get your young, often charismatic entrepreneurs, you're, you're at the 19th century, your JP Morgans and your Fords and your Rockefellers and in our time, you know, we've, we've lived through a wave of this with the Zuckerbergs and the um, Sergey and Larrys, um, backed by a huge financial investment, yeah. Um, she also said these, the, this phase results in a gilded age where you get vast wealth concentration. Um, and a lot of speculative investment. That leads to a bubble and a crash, um, which sounds pretty familiar, right? So you get this casino-like stock market kind of investment in new technology, 1920s, then a crash, 1930s. Um, she called that the turning point and the installation phase. And what she says happens here is not so much technological development, but institutional innovation. So this means that we start to work out how to make sense of these technologies and make them work for more people. This involves uh, often government-led innovation. 
So if we think about the, 19, the 1940s, um, we got the New Deal right in the States and we got sort of Keynesian economics and a whole set of social and institutional innovations that allowed mass production um, to really work to the benefit of society. Then she says that amounts to a golden age where income, income distribution actually gets better. And if you look at the record in the 1950s and 60s, it was a really good time to be a worker. You know, I mean, if you had have said 10 years earlier in the 1930s or in the, the middle of the war that we'd have sort of two decades of prosperity where workers would be able to sort of own homes and own cars and stuff, it would have seemed like a fairly fanciful claim. And I, I've just been nerding out on her particular work recently, so this may be a lot of detail, but if you hadn't encountered this idea of two, two aspects to the wave, I think that can be quite helpful. So her argument at the moment is that we've had um, an installation phase, a sort of eruption of digital technology, internet-driven uh, sort of devouring <laughs> of economic activity. Um, and then we've had this crash, but what we haven't had is the institutional innovation. We haven't had the state and government lean in and indeed other forms of organization to work out how to make this technology work for the benefit of the masses. And to be honest, I'm quite persuaded by that. The other angle, so I'll jump to the other response, is this time it really is different, right? And, and you, couldn't, you couldn't go to a Future of Work conference the last few years without someone putting up a slide that had like a whole bunch of uh, organizations on one side from Wikipedia, uh, from Encyclopedia Britannica to Kodak to, you know, um, to what else have I got here? Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. Borders, sort of quests and taxis. And then you have your Wikipedia, your Amazon, your Netflix, your Instagram, your Airbnb and Uber, right? And um, it, was, it was a really easy play. And you used to be out five years ago, that's all you had to do. You just had to put it up and say, something's happening, guys. Get on it. Um, and so, so what's happening here? Well, it's a digitization of economic activity, right? It's the, the way I think of it is it's the rolling out of the internet from being a sort of sector in itself, much like electricity did 100 years ago, into powering or underpinning almost every industry. So, so, so now we talk about HR tech or insurance tech or fintech, yeah, edu tech, I'm sure, right? Um, so just like there was an electrification of household appliances, right down to the toothbrush, which always seems a bit weird, but you know, I can't do this. Um, we're getting a sort of internetification of uh, organization. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but obviously this has a pretty dark side. Like if you take the most egregious example on that list, I think, which is Kodak to Instagram. You had Kodak that at the height of its power had 150,000 employees around the world. They were a household brand, you know, um, Kodak moment, all of that. Um, went bankrupt the same year Instagram was sold for a billion dollars to Facebook and Instagram had 18 employees, yeah, I think. Some, <laughs> the internet usually says 15 to 18. <laughs> I wasn't there. But started by, you know, two guys in a co-working space, essentially, Dogpatch Labs. Um, so, so many people point out uh, rather despondently the, the, the labor needs for this new form of, of digital work, right? Like, the, 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 what's powering the engine, if you think about what powered that engine of, of mass production was a lot of human labor in factories, what's powering this stuff is algorithms. And so you have an elite workforce designing and coming up with it, but the majority of it is, is not people doing stuff, it's, it's the, the technology itself working. 
Um, and this opens up to this dynamic that is um, <laughs> sometimes called superstar theory, and it's a real economic theory. <laughs> it's not one I made up. Rosen, 1984. So, so what I think digital, digitization and these global forms of work do is, um, well, so superstar theory is a dynamic where the majority of the rewards are captured by a minority of the players. If you think if we were in the 19th century um, and you wanted to listen to music, you had to listen to the local musician, right? You couldn't whack Coldplay on Spotify <laughs> or whatever it is, and you couldn't listen to Beyonce. Um, so, so that sort of work was by, uh, by design local. Once, you, once technology enables certain kinds of work to travel, um, you get a dynamic, particularly in creative um, work, where people want to listen to the best of the best if they can. So novels, and um, we've seen that happen in the past, music and actors and stuff like this. This has been, this has been around for a long time. But what I think is happening now is uh, work that used to be uh, performed at a local level, are, uh, a dominant digital player is emerging. So you don't even have a big four in a lot of these digital things. You have one, one actor owning search, Google, one actor owning social, largely, Facebook. So this is, this is a real thing. Um, so some still see uh, ongoing waves of disruption, right? That this, this process of churning, this kind of tsunami of change will continue. And you hear terms like this, this VACA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, adaptive, or ambiguous, rather. Um, not to be confused with, uh, that's a V, not an F. Um, and so people imagine, imagine this process continuing, and it seems to sit slightly uneasily with this, this also emergence of monopolistic players. We can talk about that in questions. But getting to the megatrends, um, there are lots of reports that talk about clear challenges. And um, like the in the Australian context, there was one that came out a few years ago by the Council of Economic Development, CEDA report, um, that, that looked at the automation trends, the algorithmic trends, and said 47% of um, Australian jobs, current Australian jobs, are in danger of becoming displaced by technology. When you add offshoring to that and the ability of, of some to further be sent um, kind of delocated, you get another 10% or so. Um, and the burden of this falls, like I said before, inordinately on young people. So when, when you look at a lot of young, the projections on young people, like Foundation for Young Australians brought out a, have brought out a series of reports on this, um, you get up to 60 to 70% of young people are training for jobs that may not be there within five to 10 years. And part of that is the the easiest jobs to automate are the, um, the sort of entry level jobs, right? The the ones that follow simple rules, like machers in um, in Argentina. Someone said to me once, it's my teasing out in Spanish thing, "I can empezar por um, parar el piso." You know that you've got to begin by sweeping the floor, right? And these sort of entry, um, the photocopying jobs, the basic research jobs, the um, the, these various activities that you used to be able to get a foothold in organizations. Um, in the past, these are disappearing. So whilst there's plenty of work for high skill, high demand, high experience, there's a real question around that, uh, that gap. What does the sort of internship of the future look like? I, I wonder about this in my own sort of work. Like I could bring people along when I do things like this. I don't know if you think I'm doing a good job or not, but, um, but I don't because there's very little advantage. I mean, bring younger people along, right? 
Um, like how do you learn to do the kind of work many of us do? You've sort of fallen into it, I imagine. I certainly did through. It, it, it wasn't like I went to university to study this particular thing. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's great opportunities as well, you know, and, and they almost need not say them, but the barriers to global forms of entrepreneurship are much lower. You really can start a business from your bedroom and we, we get celebrated stories of this stuff from or co-working spaces where people create a unicorn sort of startup, right? Very successful. You also, if you follow um, Digital Nomad's Instagram accounts, there's plenty of people that at least claim to have a very good work-life balance. You know, they're working from Bali, they're working <coughs> from home. So there, there is some flexibility for high-end workers. I think there's a subset of that is how genuine those representations are and how, how much people do express things like anxiety on their digital feeds is another question. And obviously there's wider market specialization and new niches, niches and all that. So it's, it's, it's obviously not all bad. Um, but when we look at the kinds of jobs that are in danger, and I think it's probably better to think of jobs as a bundle of tasks, because um, it may be that jobs continue, but certain tasks that make up that job are, are in more danger. Um, one way to think about this that I found helpful is, is a framework from Frey and Osborne, who wrote a paper a few years back called The Future of Employment. Um, and they, they broke up these into routine manual, uh, routine cognitive tasks, non-routine manual, and non-routine um, cognitive tasks. So if you imagine a, a four-box model. And it's pretty obvious that routine manual tasks have been disappearing from places like Australia for 20, 30 years, right? You know, these are factory assembly jobs and things basically where you're, you're doing a repeated action with your hands. Routine is essentially anything we can program for. Um, what's becoming more apparent is routine cognitive tasks are starting to disappear. So these are things like assistants, you know, office assistants or secretaries and more and more technologies getting better at coordinating diaries and doing some of these um, routine sort of office tasks. What, what's harder to automate and or offshore a routine manual sorry, <laughs> non-routine manual tasks. So these are things like massage or hairdressing or waitering. Uh, and obviously you need a person to be there. You can't send it to Bangalore. But also, um, despite Japanese labs trying to create robots to do this stuff rather amusingly, um, <laughs> sex robots aside, um, the often, well, it, well, it's very difficult to program a robot to do something like waitering. Like, you can program, you tend to be able to program robots to do a specialized task at optimal efficiency, but to do general navigate an environment, unstack a dishwasher, take an order, very difficult. Um, also, I think there's a question that, um, well, one of the big questions are the social and relational importance of these jobs. So do people simply want a haircut or do they want to chat, you know? And, and I suspect increasingly that dynamic of that affective, emotional and relational uh, dimension of work will be more important. Non-routine cognitive work or experiential work is usually gets given the green light, right? So anything that high-end creative work, um, writing a novel, <laughs> uh, orchestrating a political campaign, um, but also all, all, all kinds of forms of creative design, um, these are usually the places that human beings are directed to go. Um, I, I suspect I'm always curious whether we bundle emotional skills in with cognitive or if we see that as somewhat separate. I'm, I'm persuaded by that, so we could talk more about that. Um, and basically, there's, there's really uh, 
three, three areas that are very hard to automate for or algorithmize. High-end creative work, the relational, emotional dynamic, um, although apparently robots are getting better at recognizing emotions. You know, the MIT labs are arguing that uh, they can get machines to recognize facial expressions better than humans. Um, and the third of those sort of generalizability, like human beings in many ways are designed to not be optimal at one thing, not be optimized for one thing, but be able to do everything from shoot a bow and arrow to you know, give a political speech, to write poetry, to <laughs> navigate a sailing ship. So we've got a generalized capability um, that is hard to <clears throat> um, replace completely. I want to zip ahead because I can see some uh, tired looking eyes. <laughs> so different responses. Let me give, let me sort of steer towards the end by uh, what, are, what are different responses to these? Because in a way all I've done is paint a big problem, right? I haven't provided any answers. Um, well, one response I'd call the techno-optimistic response and encapsulated by someone like Kevin Kelly, who I, I really like, but I'm not sure how much I agree on this point. So I call it learn to stop worrying and love the robots. And he, he's got seven stages of robot acceptance in his last book. <laughs> One, a robot can't possibly do the job I do. <laughs> Two, okay, they can do some jobs, but not everything I do. I can do some tasks. Three, okay, it can do everything I do, but it, but it needs me when it breaks down, which is often. Four, okay, it operates flawlessly on routine stuff but I need to train it on new tasks. Five, okay, I can have my old job because it's obvious that's not a task humans should do now. <laughs> Six, wow, now that robots are doing my old job, my new job is more interesting and pays more. Seven, I'm so glad a robot can't possibly do what I do now and repeat. <laughs> so it's, I, I think it's a good stab at a worldview of how he sees things, you know, that this is, it's the nothing to worry about, right? Um, the challenge, and it was already mentioned, uh, is I think that that comes out of a particularly Californian sort of libertarian view that um, government has no real role to play. <laughs> and um, it, doesn't, it doesn't engage with, uh, I guess, the data put forward by Thomas Piketty in his last book, um, Capital in the 21st Century. So I, I know at least one of you has read that. But um, so this, this got a lot of press a few years back. But Piketty, the French economist, looked at income polarity and he, he basically and, and said it's, it's got uh, shocking as, as, a, as a sustained trend the last 30 years, but the last few years it's, it's really gone off the charts. And so you hear these stats, right? Like, um, you know, the difference between the earning of a CEO and a secretary on Wall Street used to be 21, 22 to 1, now it's 445 to 1, right? These massive discrepancies of income. Um, you know, and really the benefits of the, of, um, the last 10 years, and it's been exacerbated since the financial crisis the economic benefits have largely been captured by the top end of, of income earners. Not just the 1%, but even the 0.1%. So, so um, Kelly's embracing of the robots and automation doesn't seem to address this issue. I think that's why we'll hear more about uh, a new sort of social compact between technology and society, or labor and capital. There's a couple of books that have come out on this recently. Paul Mason's one on post-capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, and, and one by Nick Snernick and Alex Williams called Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism in a World Without Work, and they put their thesis on the front cover in four steps. <laughs> so you don't even need to read it, right? <laughs> so 
So their argument is we shouldn't look back to the, nostalgically to the 50s and 60s and that form of full employment under um, the automated, the, sorry, the, what do you call it, mass production society. Um, we should look forward and embrace automation. So one is we should actually get government and, and in a sense demand public investment is directed towards uh, automation. But that has to be accompanied by a number of things. One, uh, reduce working week. So Sweden, I think you, some of you might have noticed, has got out ahead on this. But um, we take it for granted, for example, now that there's a five-day working week and a two-day weekend. But these things were up for grabs even as recently as the 1930s. Like there was a debate in the US Congress of whether it should be a 40-hour or a 30-hour working week. And it was narrow. You know, we could have easily ended up with a, a, a three-day weekend. So, so there's no, we often take them as, as sort of, you know, the nature of things, right? <laughs> but there's no real reason why we couldn't shift that dynamic socially. Um, they also argue that has to be accompanied by some form of universal basic income, that we need to reimagine not just kind of welfare or kind of work protection insurance, but really um, assist this drive to automation by supporting people that are displaced um, and opening up avenues for people to do work that's currently non-remunerated. And I think the classic one there is childcare. You know, I mean, I, I, my partner always corrects me, it, well, corrects other people if they say, are you doing any work? Hannah will say at the moment, she says, yeah, I work all the time. I just <laughs> look after a two and a half year old, right? Um, so this is, this is sort of uh, an egregious uh, absence on our, on our conception of work. But there's all other kinds of work that's currently not remunerated, not paid, that's socially useful, right? Um, all kinds of care work and art and environmental work. And then the fourth one they say is we need to reimagine the work ethic itself. So currently, if, if I turned up to a place like this and said, I've never had a job, <laughs> um, there'd probably be some kind of uh, social stigma or shame on that, right? Like the, we, we generally make an assumption that the right to livelihood is predicated on paid work. Um, and their argument is we need to break that link, um, both in a sense of income, but also around self-esteem. So it's a, it's a more provocative proposal. The third idea is, I think, this, this notion of thinking about the ethics of technology design itself. So this is, um, I'm really thinking of someone like Tristan, Tristan Harris here, who's the time well spent movement. It's, really worth checking out if you haven't seen it. But his argument is that smartphones are, are really the slot machines as a sort of addiction of our era, right? And that the, the challenge with this digital uh, transformation is the basic business model for a lot of these services are tied to advertising um, and therefore they're underpinned by uh, an addictive quality. Like you get rewarded for the more time people spend on site. Um, and you've got like a hundred designers and engineers behind your screen when you're on Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook, designing it so you keep scrolling and keep clicking. And this is creating a kind of uh, actually vast social problems. Like I, I think of it as akin to what happened with food when, you know, evolutionary wise, like it, in the past it was difficult to find sweet food. <laughs> you know, if you, if you found a, a lump of honey or sweet fruit, you know, it made sense on the plains of Africa to just scarf it all down. Um, the last hundred years or so we've had relative food abundance so we have these issues we've got to reprogram ourselves right not to just chow down on sugar um, and it's diabetes and obesity and stuff and I think a similar things happening now with information addiction and stimuli response where our brains are getting programmed to sort of keep clicking and keep tapping 
So there's, there's a, an argument here to, to force, or, or I don't know how to do it exactly, but um, technology design itself to steer towards things that we actually we value rather than um, take us away from what we value. So he, he says we need our smartphones, notification screens, and web browsers to be exoskeletons for our minds and interpersonal relationships that put our values, not, not our impulses first. People's time is valuable and we should protect it with the same rigor as privacy and other digital rights. So I will end. <laughs> How might we respond to these changes? And I'll end as a sort of um, invitation to converse. So I, I think there's three domains we can think about responses to this. One is individually, as, as individual actors, what do we need to do in our own learning, in our habits, in kind of reforming our mental models to be fit for this, this sort of world, this coming world? The second is organizationally, and this is what I spend a lot of my time working on. What forms of management and organizing processes um, make sense in this world? And I think we've got, we've got little hints of that between design thinking and lean startup and you know, agile and responsive org and teal and all these various, um, I guess, nouveau forms of organization that, um, that are about. But I don't, I don't think they've been landed and integrated yet. Um, and the third domain is at that institutional level. Like how do schools and universities and indeed trade unions and these various other institutions that have essentially been the, the, the building blocks of the modern era of the 20th century, how do these need to transform or indeed what new kind of institutions need to grow in their place in order to spread the benefits of this new world of work to society at large? And I think play, environments like this, co-working spaces are sort of an interesting one in that mix. But rather than me continue to uh, talk, maybe I will hand over to, I'm getting the big, the big nod and smile from Marquez. <laughs> so I, I tracked sort of four comments there. Like one is this notion of alternative futures or uh, the, the Eurocentric nature of this presentation of the future. And I'm really glad you brought that up. It's why I started with things like different representations of the future. And I what, if there's one thing I'd like you to take away, it's a little bit of skepticism of when anyone just presents this is the way it's going to be. Because generally, stories have a, a sort of an agenda behind them, right? Um, so you know, I, <laughs> what I try and do is be transparent about my agenda. Um, but one of the things is, I mean, the big question is, like, it used to seem that there was a bunch of uh, factors, advanced industrial economy, liberal democracies that were clustered together as um, the aspire to a future. This is the, the, the idea behind the end of history thesis of Francis Fukuyama, etc. Now, if you're looking, if you were China <laughs> and you're trying to get shit done, um, if you were to say to them, you know, it'd be really good if you had a Senate like the Australian case, um, or you, sh you should look at the US political system, there's a real there's a, there's a model to aspire towards, or, or Britain, you know, like, like you'd be hard pressed to make that argument, right? So I think we are experiencing this wavering moment of what does um, the future of, of sort of the organization of the nation state and politics look like that is a whole nother conversation. Um, and also it is bizarre to be talking about, you know, universal basic income and the life of leisure when we've got phenomena like Syria and you know, happening. So it's, it's fully cognizant of that this world looks very different depending on where you're situated. Um, the persistence of big bureaucracies and Taylorism, 
that's where 80% of my work is. Like I'm just amazed at how much the vestige of Taylorism and bureaucracy is still with us. You know, you get into orgs and there's these crazy things that happen. Like, like uh, just to give one weird example, I was working for a, uh, I did some consulting for a, a large telecommunications company who will remain nameless in Australia. Um, and wh whose purpose is something like a brilliantly connected future. And I couldn't even get on the internet. Like someone had to give me permission to like, well, I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, I got on the computer and I rang them up and they said, oh no, you have to be given permission to get access to the internet. So I mean, there's these kind of um, organizations are riddled with these bizarre rules and processes and procedures that are a hang up of a different era. And there's so much work to be done in uh, massaging or re reorganizing uh, individual mental models, the dynamics of teams, and indeed the, the, uh, the flow of work between teams to make it fitter for this era. And I'm sure many of you are involved in that kind of work. There's some great consultancies doing it. And you know, I have one. <laughs> um, and just the last one, this sort of individual responsibility or maintenance of self. Look, I think, I think there is a role for individual responsibility, but I, I've, maybe I've been reacting to that. I, I think a lot of my generation, the millennials, were so disheartened with political leadership in the, the sort of late 90s, uh, early 2000s, that many went into things like social entrepreneurship or you know, uh, getting into their own recycling practice or their food, uh, individualized responsibility. And whilst that was interesting, I think to some degree it sort of individualized a problem that can actually only be addressed collectively. So uh, it's a yes and, but I'd be wary about um, this idea that it's, well, it's up to each of us, because it's also up to, to us to demand certain things of um, the state, which there are, there are certain things that only um, people with the power of jurisdictional boundaries can enforce. And I think that in some ways, this individualization of responsibility is a bit of a triumph of neoliberalism. It's saying, well, okay, um, we'll let the finance guys do whatever they're going to do. And as long as you're, if you're interested in the environment, just recycle and just reduce your carbon footprint, right? So, so I, I've got more interested the last few years in the right kind of regulatory environment to actually kickstart um, the sort of next uh, techno-economic paradigm, sort of green ICT one. And final thing, this. I interpreted your question more around what I'd call the production of subjectivity based on the working moment. So final idea to throw out, like each of these techno-economic phases um, is not just accompanied by ways of organizing, but also a new kind of social actor or social subject. So if you think about the proletariat or the working class from the, the um, serfdom, you know, farmerdom, or what we've got now is these kind of creative knowledge workers, but they have this shapes identity, so how we work, how the sort of productive relations we're engaged is, affects how we think about ourselves. It also has particular, I would say, anxieties or, or um, dark sides. And so it, one, whilst we've celebrated um, being able to work from anywhere, I imagine people like us, I can work from a cafe. If you're in a world where you can sort of check Facebook at work and do emails at night, um, you get a whole new set of problems around the blurring of boundaries between working and non-working life, the kind of tying in this sort of sense that one always should be working. Um, so I think there's a whole set of um, challenges that often aren't discussed about work in the current era um, that are related to technology. 
um, and related to expectations around technology. So I will end it there. <laughs> but thanks for listening to me. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.